0: All right, we're back here with episode three with uh, an amazing guest that if I had a nickel for every time I've heard your name in a Van Halen discussion of the 77 Starwood Showcase, I'd probably have about $500.
1: So you've heard this before.
0: Mr. Doug Messenger, producer, engineer, guitarist. Yes. How else would you describe yourself, sir?
1: A Princeton man. I have a law degree from a place in Long Beach called Uh, Pacific Coast University, which we called piece-of-crap university (laughs) (laughs) Extremely
0: accomplished uh, you are I mean our owner Paul has told me so many stories. What how
1: did did you grow up in Los Angeles? No, I was born in New York Uh, my mother was visiting her mother in Brooklyn and I decided to come out (laughs) and uh, I came out feet first, which is unusual and uh, we lived in a little town called Beechhurst. Were you playing guitar at this time? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I tried, but I couldn't quite do it. And uh, I, uh, I grew up for four years in New York, Beechhurst, Beach, which is near, near Great Neck, mm-hmm. uh, near Manhasset, up there on North Shore. Yeah. And then my, my dad worked for Fair- Sherman Fairchild, uh, who is probably a more important person than Steve Jobs to history and nobody knows who he was without him you wouldn't have the transistor you wouldn't have the chip uh, you wouldn't have the uh, cameras that are used in spy planes he's a guy who put the shutter inside the lens so that when your plane was flying over to map say manhattan it was a really solid image. Mm-hmm. It was just that little delay where the shutter usually was on a camera would leave a little bit of smearing in photos. Yeah, Tracy's And that's kinda... still the camera's used today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's the guy who put Noyce and Kilby and all those guys together. And he, in a way, he founded Silicon Valley.
0: Yeah. Did you start
1: as a guitar player then, kind of, when you were in your teens? Uh, no. I was at Princeton and a guy named Tom Brody became a friend and he had a little band called Ivory Jim Hunter and the Tigers and uh, and he, he, he had a Fender Jazzmaster and he also had a Stratocaster that he had bought and one day I was up at his room watching these guys rehearse and when they left he, he said he said you, you, you like this I said I love it and he <laughs> grabbed the Strat and put it on me and he showed me a, a bar chord for a walk, don't run, mm-hmm. you play the same chord, da na da-na-na, da da right? And about 20 minutes later, he said, let's play the song. He had taught me the whole chord progression. I was stumbling all <laughs> over the place. It was awful. But that was my start. Tom Brody, he's a doctor and lives in Minneapolis now. And uh, so that was my start. And then I went home for the summers and all that and started a band in Mexico City. We were called The Five, but there were four of us. Uh, and when people would say, <laughs> people would say, people would say, well, why, why are you called the five? And I'd say, we're four. <laughs> That's what our answer was always, we're four. That's like the Lone Rangers. <laughs> yeah, it was. And uh, our bass player became a famous actor in Mexico. He was in films here with William Holden, and uh, Sean Connery and uh, Peter O'Toole and all oh, those guys. Oof. He was in... Uh, Two westerns, the Revengers with William Holden and Ilzana's Raid with Burt Lancaster. He was a major actor in Latin America, a very nice guy. He died a few years ago uh, in Mexico. And uh, Jorge Luque. His name was Obscura, but he called him Luque because he liked Cool Hand Luke, that movie. Oh, followed Newman movie. And so, anyway, I lived in Mexico, went off to college in Princeton. After co- I got married right after college in 63 and my wife Jeannie Thompson was a navy brat and she died in 1969 uh, kidney trouble she's one of the first transplant patients ever ooh she didn't die from the kidney transplant she died from the pneumonia that she got because oh. of the drugs they give you to keep your immune system down were mm-hmm. a little too much and she got pneumonia and she died from that oh. so i was I, I played in i went to berkeley school of music while i was in boston oh wow I had worked for Bethlehem Steel for two years, right after college. I said, I don't want to be an engineer. So I was an engineering student. I didn't like it. And I didn't like the way they ran the company, although they were the biggest steel company in the world at that point. Uh, I had a great boss, but, uh, but so I said, the hell with it. And we moved to Boston and I went to Berkeley, started playing in all the bands. And that led to me playing years later, five years, six years later, was Van Morrison. Like Where did you meet
0: Van initially?
1: The guys in Boston started hiring me to help their bands. And then I moved out here after my wife died because her family lived in San Diego, the Navy Brat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I was just, I was broken in pieces because to this day, I still love Jeannie. Still gets me. But, uh, How old were you at that time?
0: Then? When you moved to San Diego.
1: Um, it was 1969, so I was uh, 27. And uh, I moved there, and I started meeting some of the bands in San Diego and stuff. And uh, But the guys who had known me in Boston, Van needed someone to help with arranging and get, getting the band to be more organized, plus the fact that he had uh, severe drug users in the band. Mm-hmm. Three of the guys in the band were heroin addicts. And uh, they had they had done the Moon Dance record, not all of them, and uh, that one, uh, his band in street choir with Domino and all that. Mm-hmm. That was the band that I went to see when I when they found me. You know, I was in I was in San Diego, and someone found me in San Diego from Boston, and they said this guy Van Morrison wants needs a guitar player who can help arrange. Did you know his name and? Uh, oh the yeah, I had heard. Obviously? I had heard "Here Comes the Night" and Gloria. And, uh, but I was more of an R&B freak at that point. You know, James Brown and Motown and all that stuff. And This would have
0: did, been right, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, did, did San Diego have a great R&B scene at the time? No. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: didn't even, I only saw two bands, that Hill City <laughs> Funk Band and a group called Buckwheat. And so that's the only two bands I saw in San Diego. Then I moved to LA and I was here playing in some bands and sometime in, I had mononucleosis, I was broke, so I was working at General Motors, uh, building cars. But anyway, I got mononucleosis. Some guy there gave it to everyone. The whole factory had to shut oh, down wow. for a few for a couple of months. And uh, while I was recovering, it was late 1970. Uh, I get a call from Van Morrison personally. Personally, he says, and he said, "Van, Doug, it's Van." Said, <laughs> yeah, said, he says, "I think it's coming together." That's how he talked. Ronnie Montrose could do Van Morrison better than Van. And He used to call me for years and fool me into thinking I was talking to Van. Sometimes they had 10 minutes worth and then he'd start laughing and that would give it away. I said, Montrose, you son of a bitch. You know, Ronnie is a funny guy. I have recorded a record with him 2003 here at my studio and then he took his, his basic tracks. He had Ricky Phillips on bass. From, you know, Ricky Phillips had been with John Waite and The Babies. And uh, he's with Sticks now. And uh, Eric Singer, drummer for uh, Alice Cooper and, uh, yeah. and uh, Kiss. Uh-huh. Uh, they were the guys who did. Ricky, those three guys did the tracks mm-hmm. and Ronnie. And he did the basic tracks. And then he took it, put it in a computer where he had done it to tape. We started saying, let's do it to tape. It goes quicker. It sounds better. I still think tape sounds better. 71, you come into Sunset
0: Sound. Had you been to Sunset Sound previous of the Van, ha- Van Morrison sessions?
1: Um, I met Bill Robinson, who was the manager here, somehow. I must have come here for some reason. Yeah. But I think it was later. I don't think I knew him in the early 70s. But it was when he started having problems with his health, I know he was telling me that. I don't know what to do. I have chest pains and all this. And I got him with my doctor, a doctor who had been my roommate at Princeton, mm-hmm. who was at UCLA. And they took care of him very well for a number of years. Then he read about something called chelation, which is kind of a homeopathic thing. And he, he dropped going to UCLA and it killed him because oh. that 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 chelation thing was a fraud mm. and that's how bill died i went to his funeral it was right out there at riverside and colfax i think the church that's there i said th- but i don't know how i met everyone here and uh i came down here the only time with van halen that i was here was on fair warning mm-hmm. uh, i had met let shall should i start where, where i met eddie how i met him
0: Yeah, I I just wanted to touch down on
1: the Van Morrison sessions. He calls you in, you guys do, uh, was that... St. Dominic's Preview was the album. We had done Jackie Wilson said and Gypsy at a place called Pacific High, which was owned by the Grateful Dead. And uh, a guy named Bob Shoemaker was the engineer. Mm -hmm. And Jackie Wilson is an amazing track because Van had written this thing, and I had heard it a week earlier at Lee Michaels' house. Remember Lee Michaels? And... uh, and it was a strange song. It had no structure at all. It just had a verse and a little chorus and a little other thing, and Van didn't know what to do with it. And he wanted to do it. The first thing we did when we got into Pacific High, that, that studio, and it was a mess. And I, I talked to Janet, Van's wife. I said, get him out of here for a while. Let's see what we can do, with it. because he'll freak out if he tests his weight. Well, something's done. She got him out of there, and while she was gone, we came up with an arrangement. And I told, I remember telling Jack Schroer, the sax player, I said, Jack, don't fight me on this, because he was resentful that Van had pired me right off the bat as the band leader. And uh, he's looking for a person to do it, And so, but but I I don't take credit completely, although I found the structure right away. This is how we're going to do it. This is going to go here, this is going to go here, etc. I had a guitar lick I was playing on that song that was a little uh, on the verses, and Jack picked, picked up on it immediately, and he came in on the second, then the horn, and then the other horn. You can't hear that on the record, the mix isn't quite right. Bob Shoemaker, and the reason it isn't quite right is we did one take, and Van was so happy about it, he looked at Shoemaker, the engineer, he says, print it, that's it, that's the mix. And oh. he did the mix. Later, Ted and Don tried to mix it. They couldn't equal that mix. There was something magical yeah, yeah. about that one performance. We tried to do the, it fell apart about 10 bars into the song on the second attempt. And Van said, no, let's just go with that one. I like it. That's it." He, if his vocal is to his satisfaction, mm-hmm. he doesn't care if you played the chords to Misty while doing Domino. <laughs> yeah. you know, he's almost that exaggerated. And Jerry Heller, who later became the NWA guy, yeah. was our promoter. He, he arranged that tour. It was uh-huh. just six gigs. The last one was in Providence, Rhode Island, a beautiful old theater. And that's where I met Paula Salvatore. From Cap- She's at Capitol now. She fell into the orchestra pit in at this old theater because <laughs> she and her friends had decided to try some acid. And she fell in and I was on, we were doing moon dance and I saw a girl <laughs> a very, you should have, she's a beautiful woman, just unbelievable, even now. and She's probably 70-something now. It's amazing. I mean, she's one of the prettiest young girls I ever saw in my life. And we got her up in the dressing room to make sure she was okay because she had fallen in. and uh, and, and she partied with us and it was great. And that's how I met Paula. And she and I have never mentioned that, in any more friendly way. We've just mentioned that she should fall fall (laughs) into the pit, met me that way. I I ran into her at Sound City in 1987 or so. Wow. I walked, I was leaving, and I said, I think I know that girl. She was sitting at a desk near the exit, (laughs) and I looked at her, I said, do I know you? She says, do I know you? And we, we never owned up. Uh, and I, we've ne- neither of us has ever gone there. We've never touched it, <laughs> but I think it's a nice story. I think it's great. And she is a wonderful person. I mean, and she's a hell of a business person. Nobody can mess with Paula Salvatore in making a deal. You know, they've done everything with Diana crawl all that stuff over there.
0: I have to talk to her about some yeah. stuff one so time. So anyway,
1: I got with Van. I could tell a long story about how funny it was meeting him, but it doesn't matter. We, we he said, "Let's go jam. Let's get the band together, introduce you to them, and we'll go play." And we were we just a jam session. We mm-hmm. were doing "Rock Me Baby," that BB B. King song, mm-hmm. and uh, Bob Dylan sat in. Buzzy Featon sat in. Richard Manuel from the band sat in. Uh, all these, all the people who lived yeah. in in Woodstock, and it was fun. It was a lot Not of fun. Bad. Bob Dylan was. <laughs> being nasty to, to Jack Kling, John Klingberg, our bass player, I don't know why. He got up on the stage, Van was singing something, and Dylan snuck by me, and he goes over and he was talking to, to John, uh, to what's his name, uh, Klingberg.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Klingberg's looking very uncomfortable, you know, and I, I, I looked over there, and you know, I didn't really know much about Bob Dylan because I wasn't a folky. I had heard Maggie's Farm, and I loved that song. Mm-hmm. And I had heard him, but it wasn't a big deal to me. I didn't know that he was God. Yeah, you know, he—he he was. I didn't know that he was God, and I walked over and jabbed him in the ribs with my Telecaster. Like he was talking to Klingberg, and I went, "Leave him alone!" And I walked back to the middle. Nice. I was—I was a good band leader. Yeah. I, was, I don't take any shit from anybody. And Dylan just looked at me like astonished. <laughs> and after he he, he left stage, and then Van got him up there. And we went at, after the gig. We went down to a place called the Sled Hill. And Van Van was drinking, and he and we left. And he was carrying two little shot glasses, some beers, and a bottle of something else under the other arm. It was, it was snow. It was beautiful. Woodstock. It was like. idyllic, Mm -hmm. and we went to that place, Van gets in there, and the first thing he does, we all went to one table, and some of the people were in the band, some people who just saw it all and let's go. So it became a big party, and Van stood up all of a sudden, and he says, a toast to my new guitar player and new band leader. I didn't know what I was gonna do, and all of a sudden he fell backward like a tree being felled. (laughs) He (laughs) went And I said, Jesus, he probably broke his neck. You know, and uh, what's his name, Uh, Richard Manuel from the band, went over and looked down, and Van opened his eyes and winked. (laughs) I mean, I guess when you're that relaxed, you don't get hurt. Yeah. And it was a good night. Uh, And so I came back to LA. This is in early 1970, and later in the year, no, excuse me, early '71.
0: Yeah.
1: And later in the year, Van called me. He says, "Come on up here. I want to talk to you." And I went up there, and that's when I met Ted Templeman. And Did you I,
0: know who Ted was prior to that? of no, any projects or no? I had
1: no idea. is when I met him. Vance said, "Hey, he is Ted," and, and he wanted to to make a record, I guess. Then I got to know Ted. We hit it off pretty well. You know, I said this. I knew immediately this guy's very bright. You know, he's a cool guy. Yeah. And uh, and uh, this I had no idea the battles to ensue later but uh so anyway uh, i i was up there and then i came back to la and van called me a few weeks later he said i want you to come up here i want you to join the band and i went went up and joined the band mm-hmm. and they were in west coast now yeah and they had played at the troubadour here sometime in 1970 it's it's a long time. Ago. You had played
0: the tr- yeah, of course. I'm yeah. Amazing that you can. I can't remember what I did last week, so yeah, I don't know what I did this morning. 50 years ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, so anyway, it was uh, after a troubadour gig, yeah, though. Okay. So, so
0: wow, I think we, I've heard stuff about that.
1: So anyway, I get, I go go back there. We put the band together. We play at the boarding house and at the Village, San Francisco, and the band sounded great immediately. We went to a specific high, recorded Jackie Wilson set and Gypsy, and that was it. Van is a trip, man. He's, he's very bright, reads a lot, and uh, it's so complicated, because this goes into Van Halen at some point, because mm-hmm. <laughs> of Don and, and, and him, and that I had met Eddie on my own, uh, just because I had heard about him. Let's well, circle
0: back to it. When was the first time you met Eddie, or when's the first time you heard Van Halen?
1: In 1976, I went to buy a, get, I thought I was gonna buy a Marshall, a little Marshall amp. I had a big 100 watt Marshall, mm-hmm. one of the few people in America who had a big one. It was just when they were starting to be the big thing. Yeah. In California, there were a lot of rock groups that had them, but um, Ronnie and those guys didn't. But in, in any case, uh, I, I went into the Rock Corporation here on Oxnard, just east of Van Nuys Boulevard. Uh And I walked in to see a different musician that I was trying to get to go in a band that I spent eight years on and and went for naught when my lead singer got killed in an accident. Ted's sister liked the band, if I recall, but we never did anything. Mm -hmm. That was the end of the band. But uh, So I, I went in there, and I was blown away when I heard Eddie playing. I said, man, this guy can really do it. And he wasn't doing a lot of tapping yet, but he was clean and fast. Yeah. More focused than he was on solos live later. Mm-hmm. Later he got messier, went live. He was always good in the studio, but live it wasn't, it was too much jamming and not enough of this. But then you think of the solos, like on the solo on Running With The Devil. Mm-hmm. That's a well-structured solo that he had to think about yeah. and write. Da-da-da-da-da-da, da 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 But anyway, so I met Eddie that night, got his phone number on a little matchbook. Uh, him and, he and Dave Lee Ross wrote their numbers for me. I never got to know Ross or anyone else, never. I never talked to anyone but Ed from then on through Fair Warning. And then one incident where I met him at Hughes Market at the bottom of Coldwater Years later, mm-hmm. so anyway, I I would call Ed once in a while, and we'd talk. And uh, I I wasn't here for one or two uh, when he was working on two. But he,
0: before all this, you sorry to interrupt you, you orchestrated a lot of stories. I've as I mentioned when we opened this, that I've heard your name in so many stories that you're the one that called. Warner Brothers and Ted th- Templeman and Mo I, Austin came down. I, that I year think
1: before. that I was the first to mention him because it was to Joanie, Ted's early secretary. 77, February of 77 mm-hmm. at the Rock Corporation. I called Warner Brothers the next day, and I don't remember if I spoke to Joni or to Benita Brazier, and I made several calls in the ensuing months just, hey... Tell Ted to go see that band, they're really something. Now I'd heard about that band when I had, in 76, when I went to, to look at this little Marshall amp, it had four 50 mm-hmm. watt amp, it sounded like hell, it wasn't a good amp. Those are never that good, it's like the Blues Breaker, not yeah. a good amp. Mm-hmm. There was another 50 watt 212 amp that was amazing, but they had to stop making it, because it always blew up, but it sounded incredible. Mm. Danny Weiss, uh, who's Joe, Joe Walsh's favorite guitar player, uh, he he had two of those amps i've never heard anything as good in my life
0: when was the first time you saw van helen in concert
1: at the rock corporation no no well that was well they were playing in a bar it wasn't a, it wasn't a concert
0: that's the performance that's what i meant it when was, was it, a performance that was that the february
1: 77 i called warner's and i don't know if i called warner brothers five times <laughs> or ten times, or two times. I just know calling and saying, you've got to get Ted to see this guy. He wants a guitar here." In fact, I used to tell people, Ronnie Montrose is a great guitar player, he's a great rhythm player, he can help arrange a song, he comes up with great licks. But he's not a guitar hero, because yeah. he isn't a guy who can shred and blow your mind. Mm-hmm. So In a solo mode. Yeah. And he was still that way when I recorded him in 2003 in my studio. He, could, he He's a great rhythm player, but not a lead player. He wrote some decent leads, but they were just, it isn't like, wow. Yeah. And so I, I that's my main thing was to tell Warner Brothers, you got to see this guy. Ted wants a guitar hero. That's it. It's did, this guy. Did Eddie stand out so much? I mean, was his amp yeah. just
0: so loud and such presence on stage?
1: His amp wasn't as loud as some Marshalls. And I found that out when I, when I came to this very room while they were doing Fair Warning. So in any event, I never was here for one or two, but when they were doing two, and, but Eddie went to the Starwood after I had met him. But one moment, I want to just- This uh, is complicated. Marshall
0: Burl, who was the promoter at the Whiskey then had booked them for playing a couple gigs weekly
1: then. I never saw them at the whiskey. Okay. I didn't go to see them again. I was too busy trying to put a band yeah, of my own. and they together.
0: weren't a big thing then.
1: No, I'm they so, weren't. But, but but the kid who told me told me about them when I was trying to buy the little Marshall amp. He said, "You got to hear this guy Eddie Van Halen," and the name is so catchy, Van Halen. And I said, "Well," so I had it in my mind. And when I walked into the the uh, Rock Corporation that night, and I looked up there, and I said, "Man, what? Are, who are these guys?" And someone said, "It's Van Halen." And I said. There they are I had heard about them maybe five or six months earlier. Yeah, and I just immediately said my god this guy is Just he's technique inventiveness Everything was beautiful What's so, that, a lot I, of cover tunes then? Yeah, they I think if I remember they were doing They did some R&B tunes <laughs> weren't rock and roll. I remember I think they did highway star deep purple and I don't remember what they did. I was just blown away by this kid on the guitar. I don't even remember the other guys. David
0: Lee Roth didn't stand out. You wouldn't remember his voice no, as being...
1: I didn't like that type of uh, showman, the Jim Dandy type. <laughs> so I didn't care about that. I was a, a guitar player. And there's Eddie. And I was, oh, my God. So I called him a couple of times. Told, I told him once. I said, I called the people I know at Warner's. I hope they come to you see you. called him. Eddie to tell them that? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and, but I never really got involved with Eddie then. I didn't come here for that, but when they were doing the second record, he called me one day, because he knew I lived right up here on Fountain Avenue, and he said, come on down, uh, uh, come on down here. Uh, and I came in here, and his, and his uh, bottom was right over there. Mm-hmm. The bottom was there, and there was other stuff here. And he, I walked in, and he put his guitar on me. And he says, play. I said, he says, I want you to hear my amp. Uh, it, it's the mo- it was the most amazing sounding Marshall I've ever heard Was
0: this the hundred watt lead that we've been discussing yeah, super then? lead a yeah. super oh, okay. lead
1: 100 and it was They did all that stuff. They cha- the voltage. He ran into it for the variac mm-hmm. was low They had to get the bias tuned. turn someone to Jose probably did the bias got it, but it had this thick sound it wasn't as trebly as most march- marshals. It was smooth and big, Not as harsh. but it wasn't that loud compared to my marshal, As I had a marshal. I was playing in some bar band down in Orange County because I needed money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Coke, and the, this is gonna be, I've gotta backtrack to, to Montrose for, for a reason that has to do with Ted. Um, when Montrose was making the record here, uh, I got a call from Steve Brandon Coco? They call him. He now he's a guy who tunes speakers in studios. He was Van's. Um, he's our our uh, our gopher and our roadie, mm-hmm. and he had helped to break Grateful Dead, make that big PA system of theirs, and wh- And he knew I knew him because he lived here in California. And he called me one day and he said, well, "I'm down at Sunset Sound. I don't know if I had ever been here before that. This is like '73." Moving it. This is ahead, but I've got to get it out because I'll forget sure, later. Yeah. And uh, he said, We need a, you know, he says, Do you still have that Marshall amp you had? Because <laughs> very few people had them. Most of the guitar players around had smaller amps. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, Yeah, I've still got it. And Coco said, Doug, could you bring it down here and lend it to Ronnie Montrose? I said, Sure. I knew Ronnie because he had been with Van between the first time i met van and when i finally went back and stayed with him for over a year Mm -hmm. when he was doing tupelo honey and all that stuff and uh i got along very well with ronnie he was always fun and they took my amp and it was brought here and they did rock candy with it that's
0: awesome i think that there's
1: another song on the record that sounds like it might have been that amp and it's called make it last Mm. the rest of it are the amps they'd been using and I don't know if it was Don or Ted or who, who said, we don't have quite the sound for Ronnie that he ought to have. And that's when Coco said, Doug has a Marshall. And it's a great sound. He had heard my amp. Mm-hmm. And so they brought it here. I think that was mic'd at a very, I think it was, the sound of it for my ear was Studio One, but Paul will figure out whether it was here or there. Yeah. Because it sounds to me like they had the amp near the window and put a mic behind the amp, above the amp, looking at the window, because mm. it was so damn loud. Mm-hmm. My amp was crazy loud. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, you wanna have ears <laughs> bleed, you know? And if you listen to Rock Candy, you can almost hear that little the reflection, th- reflection in, in Rock Candy. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe that was it. So I, that was it. And, you know, I, I'd known Ron, i had met Ronnie. Ronnie used to called me in church. Bill Church over to his house in '72. This is a year earlier, he was going to go on the road with Edgar Winter. You know, he played on Free Ride and Frankenstein and all that. He helped arrange that stuff. Ronnie was a good arranger, yeah. and uh, and uh, he called me in Church over to his house one day. He says, "You know, I'm going to be on the road, you know, and uh, I don't want my wife screwing around with anybody." <laughs> he says, "But if you guys want to, go ahead. I'd rather have friends." <laughs> that's how crazy Ronnie was you don't have to put that <laughs> guys you didn't hear that <laughs> I, no I don't want to embarrass is isn't that common you always tell your
0: girl your isn't friends, that a rock like, and hey, roll I, Rocker. I you would you guys want
1: to do her that's cool. I would never I would never do something like that for one you know no I didn't want anybody near Cindy but Cindy was in this band pod I want to just say the end of that one time Ed and I were talking on the phone, I think, and I said, did you ever see Pod? And he says, yeah, the guitar player's the best guitar player I've ever heard, a guy named Spider Taylor. He was the guitar player in Pod, and I know, I heard the guys, because when I met Cindy, I heard that band at the Starwood a couple of times. He, that guy was amazing. It was a totally different style, unlike Eddie, unlike anyone I've ever heard. And he, he was a gay man, and he was a really nice guy, and a guy named Steve Quadros was the drummer, and that's all I remember. Mark, Mark, someone on keyboards, Cindy singing. It was a simple little band, mm-hmm. but but this my Spider Taylor man, what a guitar player. He disappeared. I don't know where he is, I've never heard of him. Uh, some
0: Just some questions about that first uh, performance at Rock Corporation. Was there like the performance
1: of, You know David jumping off the the drums or was Eddie really I was there not so much for Van Halen But I took notice and waited till they were done To get at the number Well, Anyway, he called me when they were doing fair warning and I came here. He put the guitar on me He says go ahead play so I played a little I said that's not as loud as my Marshall You know and I said but it sounds amazing I was just blown away. I can't remember if it was the white and red, the white and black guitar or the red and white one. I don't know which one it was. I don't remember, it might have been the red one. Mm -hmm. And it was right over here. Yeah. The amp was sitting, the bottom was sitting somewhere about, move your hand this way. No, this way. Uh. There, somewhere over, right about there. Can you move that camera over? And I was standing here and Ed just came and put the guitar strap over me, he says play. You know, so I played a little and I said, that's amazing. He said, he said, you can touch a note anywhere and it comes out. And I just said, I don't do the tapping. I didn't really care. I still don't care for that style much. Mm-hmm. It's a show off thing, but I prefer like a solo like Rishi Blackmore on on uh, highway star or jimmy page on on um, stairway to heaven a real melodic solo and eddie could do that yeah nice. he could do anything He's, he was the best guitar player i i'm i knew hendrix from before he was hendrix when he was jimmy james playing
0: when you would see eddie playing live i there's stories fables urban legends that he wouldn't in the beginning that he would turn his back on the crowd well, he did the tapping because he didn't want people to steal his technique. He did
1: I, that that's funny. I never ever have thought of that till you said it. I do remember him when I walked up near the stage. I remember him turning a little. I could sort of see what he was doing, oh, but not wow. really. And so, but anyway, he called me that day when I came here and then I left, you know, we mm-hmm. talked for a while and all that. And then he called me one day. He says, "We just finished mixing a song called Dance the Night Away." And are you at home? I said, yeah, I'm at home. And he came up, up. I think he had a little black Volvo, If I think that was his car, a black Volvo. He pulled up on Fountain Avenue in front of my apartment and he says, come out to the car. And he had a cassette and we listened to Dance the Night Away, he said, we just mixed it. And I heard it and I said, the guitar is way out of tune in that section (laughs) in the middle where you're going through the phase shifter. I said, it's horrendous. And he goes, yeah, but you know, producer likes it so and i like it so the hell with it. Wow. It was one of those moments where they both opted for this is just this isn't a serious van halen song. And of course Ted of course being a bright guy already was thinking radio single. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Why, um, back to this infamous Night of the Starwood, I'm obsessed with the Starwood, all the bands that came out of there and Eddie you know, Nash that is owned a sto- it. a great
1: story, that's my best
0: story. But why, um, when, why did you think Templeman was a good fit for Van Halen? Did I, you, because that's who you knew. <laughs>
1: <laughs> because I knew him and I knew that he thought Ronnie was the, the be all and the end all. Mm-hmm. And just between you and me, I was a better lead player than Ronnie ever was. Uh, but I thought he was an, a brilliant arranger mm-hmm. and a guy who knew to come up with licks. Think of all those songs, Rock the yeah. Nation, Bad Motor Scooter, Rock Candy. That is c- class stuff. Uh, absolutely. It's b- very few guitar players can come up with signature rhythm parts, mm-hmm. and Ronnie could do it. Yeah. But anyway, so I heard Vance the Night Away. And right after that, I was talking to him on the phone a couple of days later, this is right before the last night for, for, for Fair Warning where I came back down here at night when they were finishing. They were out in the parking lot by the time I got here and I met Valerie. She, This is my girlfriend Valerie. I Bert didn't Nelly. watch TV. I didn't even know who she was. Yeah. I just noticed that he had a bottle of Jack in his hands and I said, that's not a good sign. you know. And I told him so on the phone. But uh, but um, And there's a story about Unchained that I'll tell you in a minute. This is a major battle between but him. You and you were
0: second chair on Fair Warning, also for some tracks, right? No. Second engineer? No. No. Okay, I've heard no. Of
1: that. I I put my two cents in at when Ted left the room during Unchained because he had erased the part that Eddie had done the day before, and he went, and he was working with Ted with Eddie uh, Ed on Ted on a new part for Unchained, and Ed was resisting. He says, God damn it, Ed. I still remember saying, Ted, that's what I want for the song. That's, it's it's one of the best things I've ever written. Mm -hmm. I remember him saying that. He said, it's an amazingly different thing, and it's great. And he, the fight got crazy, and he, and Ted left. Stormed and out of Sunset. this yeah, room. and Don so was in there, fuck and I off, was in I'm there. Leaving. Ted had made me sit in that corner right there. It was in this studio. Uh-huh. That was in two. And Don was at this end of the board. Ed was just past him standing there with his guitar. And uh, the, the tape remote, tape machine remote was there, you know. And uh, what I heard later, uh, I'm going to amend the story a little here because I, I don't want trouble. Uh I heard that Ed did another track while Ted was gone mm-hmm. and that's what's on the record <laughs> And Ted didn't even notice that it had been redone Or he was fed up and said fuck it. Let's just go with uh, it
0: Wow I, I, had the, the I
1: don't course. know how I have that idea, but the idea was that that was a uh, That Ed redid the original part just the way he wanted it. Mm-hmm. So he had what he wanted you know yeah. and uh, so anyway uh, when I came here that night, I met Val and all that, and uh, and I I said, "This is portentous, you know." He, I, he, that's hard liquor he's drinking, and and then I didn't see much of Ed for years, until I was at Hughes Market, which is now Ralph's, yeah. at Ventura and Coldwater, uh-huh. and I was in line one day, way later, like probably. The late eighties or early nineties, and someone grabbed me from behind and wouldn 't let go <laughs> and i was <laughs> i'm going come on, man he says you got you have to give me a name or you I'm not letting go wow, right and he finally let go, and it was ed he said he said, "How are you doug i said i'm fine man so i haven't we hadn't talked at all. I went to see them at the s festival mm-hmm. and I saw one amazing show in Anaheim uh it was Jay Giles Band, Foreigner, Boston, and Van Halen, and that was the first time they had paratroopers. You come down behind the stage, and they did it again at the S Festival. Mm-hmm. The S Festival was awful. It was terrible.
0: Really, that's they what Brian said too. That it wasn't their best. They didn't play
1: well. Well, the the thing was that Steve Wozniak paid for that show. By the way, I have a, a, a historical comment to make about that show because I've never heard this. Steve Wozniak has never gotten credit for putting on the first major event in rock and roll history where nothing went wrong. It was so well organized. No one got raped, like at Woodstock. I was at Woodstock in 69. And I had to rush back to Boston because my wife got sick, and she died a little later, like a week later. Uh, uh, Wozniak, Organized it so well. There were enough porta potties. There was food. There was parking. You didn't have to pay for parking. It was amazing. Devore, California. I think that was the name of the town. Mm-hmm. It was this huge hill. And it, one, one day, when Judas Priest was there, I went to all. Th- I went all three days. Mm-hmm. Never talked to Ed during all this. Uh, he, later, he told me on the phone one day, and that was maybe the last time I spoke to him. Uh, uh, no, I spoke to him that time at Hughes Market. But we I just hadn't talked to him for, because I was really working hard at putting a band together. Mm-hmm. It was a band I had, we were called The Pickles, and we were sort of like the Beatles meet Van Halen. That's it was awesome. power band, but short songs, clean songs. I still have the tapes. Come out to the studio, I'll play them for you. Definitely. All I've got though is the bass, drums, guitar, uh, some guitars, and keyboard, that's it. And it's a drum sound, the likes of which has never been heard before. That's all I'll say about it. So you can tell me if I'm lying. You can tell me you're a liar messenger. <laughs> when you come out there we one will. day. Mm-hmm. And we've done a bunch of the big records over there. We did Jimmy Eat World's big record, oh, nice. Hey There, Delilah, mm-hmm. The, the plain, plain, uh, New Found Glory, Joe Bonamassa. We've got this huge pile of people through there over the years. Wow. Now nothing, not just because of COVID. It's really everybody can record on a laptop at home yeah. like these guys you record at home? Yeah. I knew it. Yeah. It's probably not the time <laughs> They're, the estimate is nine million two hundred and thirty two thousand Pro Tools rigs in Southern California. Everyone has a pro, can can record at home. Yeah. Oh yeah. People we have who a don't even plug in. Yeah. Sunset sound. Did you know that? You don't yeah. You don't, you don't even have to have, have an instrument. You just no. need a singer. That's all you need. Everything yeah. else, oh, let's grab that bass sound, let's grab this guitar. Mm-hmm. It's amazing technology, it really is. But it's hurting guys like me, because uh, I don't like it. We do stuff to our computer, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. The sessions go faster with tape. The band plays better because they know I better get it right, mm-hmm. but you can punch in. I mean, we can punch in for one beat yeah. da, da, da on the tape machine, you can do it. Absolutely. It's, it's easy. I have a Stevens machine, the best machine ever made. They're rare. I've never worked on one. Of those. Oh, my God. They're, there's nothing. Studer sounds like crap next to a Stevens. And I can, and ask Rob Schnaff. You know Rob? Yeah, yeah. Ask Rob about his experience using a Stevens at Sonora Recorders and how the machine went down and John Stevens took it to fix it and they rented a Studer 827. They were doing a bass overdub and... Drop Schnaff will tell you, when we punched in and punched out and then heard it back, the difference between on bass track between the Stevens and the Studer was so big, I couldn't live with it. We had to wait to get the Stevens back. John Stevens made a machine that only had, if you open the thing up, here's a pile of electronics on a card, Mm -hmm. that's 12 tracks on a piece of stuff this big. On a Studer, one track has that much electronics. Mm -hmm. The Stevens is minimum signal path, which is part of why these boards here were so good. And I don't think that, Paul and you guys in the interview said that the board in one back then was a DiMedio. It was a Bushnell, Mm -hmm. it was not a DiMedio.
0: After the Bushnell, it was the DiMedio. Yes, it was a,
1: a Bushnell and then it became then, then I think Bob Bushnell may have worked for, for uh, Frank DiMedio or he knew DiMedio mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, Dean Jensen had worked with Bushnell mm-hmm. and Dean Jensen built this, the, record, this, the my board that I have at my studio now. Dean killed himself. You know, he couldn't reconcile two things in his life, and. Um
0: back to I'm sorry to backtrack so no, much no, but uh, I really want to I discuss, should apologize to you no, for taking a casual off on casual conversation all these crazy it's, it's <laughs> Everything's so interesting back to the uh, initial performances do you remember a song that stood out what was I mean it was you said that it was primarily Eddie that really just rocked the house and stood out but mm-hmm. why, what was the
1: like a song or something I, that really made you want to call Templeman from the Star Wars. No song. It was just his playing. I don't even remember what they played. I think they may have played Running with the Devil.
0: At the Star Wars. And World. they
1: might have played, played that one that was da 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 da, da, da. Oh. Feel Your Love Tonight.
0: What's it called? I can't wait to feel your love.
1: That might, they may have played that, but I'm sure they, if, if I have to pick one out of, the, out of my head. of with Running with the Devil. In, and a lot of cover songs.
0: Did you? So you used the phone of the Starwood and called Warner Brothers, and had they? No,
1: I, I went the next a day or two later. I called Warner Brothers, and I know that I called them more than once. And all I would say is, is there's the Guitar Hero, that Ted. Ted was never in, and I hit it off pretty well with Ted. Uh, I, I liked him. I thought he was a cool guy. Ed always had mixed feelings about him because Ed is a guy who and when he when he felt like it he could be a good arranger and when he felt like it he knew how to keep songs compact mm-hmm. but let's face it ted Templeton is a damn genius at getting a song to have the essentials and nothing more yeah and ed sometimes didn't want the essentials i want to get off and get it get it on yeah get weird. You know? but so they needed one another Ted and eddie needed one another what
0: was their process when they'd come in this room did you heard or do you after after being I, in here that I day, didn't and see fair any of the basic
1: tracking? I was just here that one time when they were doing Unchained yeah. when Ed said come down here rescue me I said rescue from what from Ted? <laughs> <laughs> and he said he wants me to change a part and I don't want to do it I just don't want to do it now. I can't vouch for the accuracy of his saying it, but I'm convinced that Ed Redid it when Ted was out of the room, yeah. and that Don probably freaked out at having to do that, because Don would have worried about Jesus. Can I, will I ever work for Warner Brothers again? Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I remember when I was here and they were arguing Ted and 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 Eddie. I said nothing. I just sat in that corner over there by those compressors. I just sat there. And then I said, I'm going to go. And Eddie would say, don't go. And Ted said, Doug, you better leave. Well, I didn't. Ed left. I mean, Ted left. And then Don was like this at the console. (laughs) He put his head down in his arms down at this end. And that's when I left. Was this daytime? Daytime.
0: Yeah, because we just found out by looking at the work orders that almost all of it, they worked from 10 to... Fair warning,
1: and it was this room. Mm -hmm. But I never saw any tracking over there. You know, but I tend to like that first, the guitar sound on the first record and the drum sound. Mm -hmm. I didn't like it later when there's more processing done to both things. Those guys, Alex Van Halen and Eddie Van Halen, didn't need any processing. Now, Eddie got all caught up with chorusing and Mm -hmm. phase shifting and all that. It was good. I don't think, maybe you have to when you have a long career. Yeah. Like, you know, Hendrix used more and more stuff too. Yeah, I heard him the first time he was playing with Joey D and the Starlighters, Hendrix. uh, Yeah, and he was called Jimmy James then.
0: Oh, wow! I remember
1: the exact week. Where is this? The first week of December, 1965. New York. I was going to Berkeley School of Music. I was playing in local bands. We were playing at a place. A little band I was had, I was in called Bobby Ace and the Stack Deck. And we were an R&B band by then, doing Otis Redding and James Brown. We went up to the to the the, lion, uh, the Tiger's Tale, and it was Joey D and the Starlighters doing Peppermint Twist, and they had had a hit <laughs> with that in 61, but this was 65. And I noticed the guitar player. I said, this guy's good. And he, he was very clean cut, short hair, you're wearing a do-rag. Mm-hmm. You know, they put lye in their hair to straighten it completely and they'd wear the do-rag and leave it on until the hair set and then take it off and you had a nice short haircut. Mm-hmm. And Hendrix, little bolero with short jackets with some sequins and shit <laughs> on it. And the short, and gypsy. tight pants like the Motown guys where yeah. you're wearing nylon stocking, uh, socks, so you can see the nylon from there to the shoe there. Was the, the, the pants ended up here, and then the, the, you see the the ankle and then the shoe. And, and so I went up there. I said, hey man, you play really well. He wasn't playing a Strat. He was playing a jazz master left-handed and he had a fender super reverb and he and I said he says it's a, I said you're a good player man and he said this isn't my stuff I had to borrow it. my stuff's in Hawk oh, he, he, wow. it wasn't even what he what he usually played with yeah. and by the way at the Starwood the first, we've got to talk about that night at the Starwood that's because what... I'm the only guy who was there all these other guys can shut the fuck up I was there because <laughs> I whenever I knew they were going to play close, And I I would call the damn label and say, come on, have Ted watch this guy. And it was a night, I'll I'll go to that right now since I'm there.
0: One question, speaking about guitars, was Eddie in those days playing the Les Paul then?
1: No. No. At the Starwood, he played a Strat that wasn't even his Strat. And it didn't have a humbucker down by the bridge. And I remember going up to the stage right before they started to play. There was nobody there. At the Uh, Starwood, nobody there that night. It was raining I've never seen raining. rain like this in L.A. in the, since I've lived here since '69. I've never seen rain like that. It was just pouring, wow. and uh, and uh, I went over there. You know, I parked somewhere on the street and got by soaked. Yeah, I was by myself. And How I, did
0: you know they were coming? I'm sorry to keep. I just I'm well, so interested in this.
1: I think Ed had told me we're going to be at the Starwood.
0: And Marshall Burl, who was the promoter at Whiskey, had set up this showcase at the Starwood.
1: Yeah, but it wasn't a showcase. Okay. I don't know where they get that idea that that's a showcase. Marshall, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, here's what it was. Doug sitting there drinking a Coca-Cola. A barmaid named Sydney, and I remember her because she was a good-looking girl. A brunette, really bright and a bar guy behind the bar named Mike, and we all talked for a while while the band, the band wasn't there when I first got there. And out on the marquee, Van Halen, in letter's this big, Van Halen. And Ted and Mo, I have to reconstruct this from my own imagination. Ted and Mo had been in Century City, getting plastered and probably eating at Yamato or one of those places they were driving down Santa Monica Boulevard in this rainstorm it was a goddamn typhoon you know i expected a goddamn tsunami <laughs> right down Santa Monica Boulevard and they were as they came up to the starwood i think they were driving back to burbank they were going to go down Santa Monica Boulevard mm-hmm. the sunset was would have been a, a I don't know why they were doing it. And they, and this is my theory. They looked up and they said, that's that band that everybody wants us to hear. <laughs> I don't think I was the only guy. I think they yeah. had, by then they must, this is February. Uh, no, no, story. the February was at the, uh, when I had seen them at the Rock Corporation. This was later in the year. I don't know if it was after the demos. I don't know, I can't remember when it was. We could go to one of those weather things online and find out when there was a major rainstorm here. And it was, and I don't even remember what day of the week it was, although I read somewhere that it was a Sunday. I never said that. You know, I don't remember when it was. And Ed, I went up to the stage when they were gonna start and I noticed that's, he said, this guitar doesn't have a humbucker. He said, it's gonna sound thin. And I said, Ed, you'll sound fine no matter what you play. (laughs) And he did, you know, and uh, he knew how to amp and stuff. And uh, I was sitting there, and there's Sydney and Mike and the guy at the door. I don't know who he was. And that was a place run by the mob. Eddie Nash. Eddie Nash. And uh, the guy at the door let me in, and I was sitting there. And all of a sudden, the band had already started to play. Ted walks by me and Mo. And as they walk by me, they didn't see me, but they go, I go, hey guys, how are you? And Ted goes, Oh, Doug, how are you? He didn't treat me very well that <laughs> night. I think they were just blasted out, you know, drinking, and uh, they went and sat down somewhere. I don't even remember where they sat, but I do remember after they heard about three or four songs, they went upstairs and disappeared up there, and I saw them up there writing things. And it turns out I heard later from from Ed that they had written a, a letter of intent. That's what that's what it was called, a letter of intent. Mm-hmm. And they said, you call us, we want first dibs. That's when it happened. On a napkin. I didn't see Marshall Durrell, I didn't see anyone.
0: Yeah. It was an
1: empty club. Wow. And I didn't stay much longer because I was worried, worried about my place out in the valley. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, Jesus, this rain. I didn't stay for the whole show. I didn't even talk to them after the show. I talked to Ed right before they went on. He came up, hey, Doug, what are you doing, man, Mm da-da-da-da-da, and all that. And uh, I said, I think I made a joke. I think I said, I came here to see (laughs) Spider-Taylor. Who are you? (laughs) Something like that. And he goes, and and I know, he he knew that he was the shit. Eddie knew it. He knew it. But he did claim that Spider-Taylor was even better. Mm. Wow. You could put that in somewhere. Spider-Taylor. And I don't know where he is. I don't know, Orange County guy. Were were there any bands in
0: L.A. that you could even say held a candle to Van Halen at that time? There weren't the many good bands at guitarists? that time. Mm-hmm.
1: There were a lot of bands, but nothing that good. It's
0: punk and uh, New well, Wave. Well, see, and... remember,
1: the, the labels wanted punk, the, the second coming of punk, because it had failed in 1979, right? Okay. They wanted uh, They wanted the second coming of disco. They were pushing that and they wanted reggae. Everyone forgets that that was when Marley and all that yeah. stuff started to be heard, Bob Marley and company. When year was Bob Marley really hot? Like in 77 or later? I don't. I think it was some, I don't know when it was, but yeah, I just 70s. know, and here's a thing that I heard at Warner Brothers after that that led me to, I was over there one day talking, I used to talk to Russ Titleman more than to, Russ and I really connected better than me and than Ted and I did, mm-hmm. uh, although I like Ted. I have great respect for the guy. he's smart as hell, you know, or heaven, whatever you care to call it <laughs> and uh And I remember an argument that was going on they all their offices were together. here was Ted's here was um, there was Ted, Lenny and Russ Titleman, his was over here. And they were all in that little area where the deaths were, where Joni and mm-hmm. or Benita, whoever was the, the girl at, the, at that point. And they were talking about the new wave. And one of them was, I don't know who it was, some, they or some other guy who came in was raving about the Talking Heads. Mm. And I said, to me that band doesn't mean a damn thing. <laughs> you know? I said, it's not really rock and roll, it's clever. It's clever and it's, I think, a little bit fake, mm. you know. It's kind of college thing, you know. Yeah. Philosophy students at UCLA <laughs> or something like that. And one of the guys started saying, and he says, well, what else is there? And I said, Van Halen. And Van Halen already had Van Halen one out. Mm-hmm. And it got into an argument and someone turned to one of the girls and said, go get the figures for Van Halen's sales of the first record. and Because they had mentioned that they had three records by that time from Talking Heads. Uh I don't know if that's true, but that's what I heard. That's Uh my memory, that they had three. They had sold 450,000 copies total for three records. Mm -hmm. When she came back, Van Halen had sold in the millions Mm -hmm. already. Even though, and all this stuff about how Warner Brothers put a ton of money behind him, not quite true. They were putting a ton of money behind all the other stuff, and only because Ted was such a, you know, a believer, he got them to finally start pushing it, and it paid off. Wow. They didn't need a hit single to be a big deal, mm-hmm. because anyone who ever heard them was immediately awestruck by, by Eddie. Yeah. You know, and and, and the band was a great band. They could sing harmonies, three part so harmony beautifully. And Alex, Alex could follow Eddie because they didn't stay at one tempo. They, there's no click tracks. No, Jeff it, it goes that. up and down, and Alex right there with Eddie. Unbelievable. Alex is a hell of a drummer. Yeah. And you know, when they started, it was the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Eddie couldn't play drums at all. And Alex was terrible on guitar. And almost overnight, it was boom. They were both good. What did you? How did you feel at that time
0: when you had saw them at the Rock Corporation? You saw them at the Starwood. You had made all these calls. Then you start seeing some movement. Were yeah, you like, well, I good did, for
1: them. This is. I didn't God's hear. Plan? I didn't talk to Ed at all till after they were signed and after they made the first record. Yeah, but how did you personally feel? Because you were instrumental in kind of who knows what. I call. felt I was just happy. I said, okay. Eddie got. Eddie's getting his, the chance he needed mm-hmm. and I remember living in Belmont Shore early 77, no 70, early 78 when the record came out. Uh-huh. Uh, I was living in Belmont Shore with Cindy, the girl who was in the band with Spider Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got married, we were married for nine years and, uh, and it was a Saturday morning. And we had the radio on all night, you know, in the background. I was out in the living room. And I heard Ain't Talking About Love wow. on the radio. I, it felt so good. It was like, it was as as if I had done it, you know, in my mind. Yeah, sure. I didn't think I did it, no, but I thought it was exciting to hear a Van Halen song on the radio. I don't know if it was KMET or K Rock or which station, mm-hmm. but that was where I first heard them on the radio. And I didn't even talk to Ed for years till much once in a while on the phone uh you know until he called me that day that he wanted to play dance the night away for me while they were doing Pharo- Van Halen too yeah the song i like on that record is women in love yeah. i think that's amazing that intro it's one of those spectacular intros mm-hmm. someone should put a little put out a little disc that has the intros yeah. the intros to top jimmy mm-hmm. uh, women that's and that's children cool. cathedral little guitars. Eruption, little guitars. Yeah. Just the whole record of just those things. They are so amazing. Mm-hmm. And each one is so different from the next. He's one of those guys with a true mind of his own. Eddie Van Halen didn't need anybody to tell him a damn thing. He's He's not an academic genius. And the Ivy guys I went to school with wouldn't feel comfortable talking to him, they wouldn't know what to talk about. But I'll tell you, he is at a level beyond most human beings. Mm -hmm. Because he changed the way guitars were played more than Hendrix changed it. Hendrix, when I heard him playing with Joey D and the Starlighters, it's an interesting story, when they got off stage and I met Jimmy, and he, said, and he said, yeah, I'm Jimmy James. My real name's Hendrix. I'm from Seattle. My dad's in the Army. I remember him telling me that. And we went down to the dressing room. The mob guys came over to us all. We were bunched up on the stage. And they goes, hey, you guys, go downstairs. Uh, get dressed and get the fuck out of here. You know, oh, the mob wow. guys yeah. ran that club. And we're downstairs. Hendrix, <laughs> Hendrix and I are talking. Uh, this guy, Bob Glaze and Richie Mayer, Guys in my the band I was playing in, and Hendrix looked on the floor and there was a Monopoly game on the floor, a box, and he looked at it and he said, "Monopoly, anyone for Monopoly?" And Hend- <laughs> Hendrix said this. Okay, we got it out. We found a, somehow a little table and we yeah. started playing Monopoly, and then it, in came the damn mob, and they said, "Hey, flat faces!" They called us flat faces. "Hey, flat faces, get the fuck out of here!" You know. So we left, and that was it. I didn't see yeah. Hendrix again until five Hendrix. years oh. later when he, I was at the Whiskey helping Danny Weiss, that guitar player that Joe Walsh loved so much. Uh, he was in a group called Rhinoceros. Mm-hmm. He, he also backed Alice Cooper, backed Ben Midler. Danny Weiss is one of the great guitar players no one ever heard of. Like Spider Taylor, a genius. He's in Canada now just playing bars. And he's trying to be like a jazzy guy. He shouldn't do it. He plays it well, but why? When you could play so well doing other things. Uh, But um,
0: I wanted to ask you uh, one question. I forgot to earlier. What I know, everybody's heard now about the Gene Simmons tapes. But had you heard about those back then in the Starwood kind of era that he had already recorded stuff? I heard later. No,
1: I heard later that there had been a demo done that Gene Simmons had put out thirty grand. Yeah, something on that order. For a demo, and that the demo wasn't 30 that grand.
0: Good. Uh, what? At thirty grand, and uh, that Gene Simmons came up with. The, that's the, what I heard, okay.
1: not from Eddie. I don't remember where. I really lost touch with Eddie in 1980 because that's when I had my band. Sure. The guy I had, one of the guys I found at the Rock Corporation. One guy I found at the 409 in Santa Monica. He was an amazing bass player from uh, Miami. A kid named Eddie Keating uh, who could sing and play at the same time mm-hmm. anything like the way McCartney could do it. Eddie Keating, he's still down in Orange County right now and the drummer was a Mexican kid from uh, East LA, uh, Gil Gallegos, who I put him in there was John Bonham. He was incredible. It took me five years to find three guys. I wanted to really do it. Yeah. Never worked out. <laughs> it didn't work out, one guy got killed. And oh. and the bass player disappeared the day that Kevin got killed. He said, I can't take the pressure. Because making a record when you, you know, yeah. it's a lot of pressure. And we were doing it, we said, the hell with it, you know. I told Roberta Peterson, I said, we're just gonna, I have a guy who will give us some, the money, we're gonna start it ourselves. And uh, I was debating whether to use George Tutko. He was an engineer who did Rod Stewart, he did, uh, John Cougar's big record, Jack and Diane, all that stuff, or Chris Minto, who had done all the Keith Olsen stuff with Sammy Hagar, Rick Springfield, Pat Benatar. They were both great engineers, but Minto had gotten into that stuff, and I said, no, I'll get Tutko, and Tutko got hired to do a Rod Stewart record, and so we didn't do it, and I found a guy named Bob McCauley to do our engineering. I'll play you the tapes, the, the, these drum tracks yeah. sometime. It's unlike the sound, is unlike anything you've ever heard. Because I was a fiend. Awesome. I wanted everything different. <laughs> we used Dan Armstrong clear guitars, mm-hmm. two guitars and a bass, but we modified them, and I went to Dan Armstrong himself. I said, these aren't good enough, here's what we need. I, uh, and, and Dan made me boxes, and I had one of every pickup a Gretsch pickup, a Gibson pickup, a P90, Tele, a Broadcaster, a Strat, you know, a, a Tesco Del Rey. I had 20 pickups I could put in that Dan Armstrong. Everything we did was, but that doesn't matter. It's We're talking about a little about me, but mostly about Van Halen. And Eddie... I just kept. I was so busy with my band. I rarely talked to Eddie. I saw them at the U.S. Festival. I saw an amazing concert at Anaheim.
0: Were you in the crowd at uh, the U.S. Festival?
1: Yes. Okay. Did you was didn't there go all backstage and talk to him at all? No, it was too too messy. Yeah. And the reason it was a mess is that Steve Wozniak, I had started this earlier, had put this thing on, and he had a. He wanted to make a statement, a, a cultural statement, and he had a, a, a helicopter. 2,000 feet up there holding what looked like a spaceship in the, in the night, it was dark, and it floated down over the stage, right? <laughs> and nobody talks about that, do they? Have you ever heard this? No. And it came down and all of a sudden, it was the first concert ever with monster screens and video and that was Steve Wozniak, I don't know if Sony or who helped him, but all of a sudden the screens like. <laughs> and here's this spaceman talking to the audience. All 700,000 people who were there that night. This it is was, before
0: Van Halen said that all this happened? Yeah, right.
1: The, the, I think the Scorpions were, the no, or Judas Kreese, the, then the Scorpions, because they had a hit single, then Van Halen. And it took two hours while Wozniak did this thing where the spaceman was gonna tell us all to behave ourselves and be good little kids and, be, and love one another. Us festival. Yeah. It didn't mean United States. Yeah. It meant us. We're all one big, one big group, and you know, it's it's the youth of America and so forth. That was the most amazingly organized concert. There were enough porta potties. There was enough food. Everything. And one day when Judas Priest played, it was estimated there was upward of seven hundred thousand people in this field. It went way up a hill and way off to the sides, as far as you could see. Incredible and no trouble, no rapes, no murders, nothing went wrong for three days. Why doesn't the, why doesn't the media talk about that? You know why? Because it doesn't fit what the, what the academics in America want to present as our history. They talk about Woodstock, which I was there, it was a disaster. It, the music was great. Sly Stone was incredible, Joe Cocker was killing it with doing the... the and Hendrix pump. killed it, too. I mean, that version of Star-Spangled Banner, he couldn't equal it in the studio. He tried it in the studio. The live version is it. Yeah, That is just... Oh, like, the bombs bursting in there, all that. Just incredible. 9 a.m. in the morning. Everything got way... Behind. Woodstock was a mess. There were several women got raped. There was a murder. And it was a mess. And I know a little bit about Woodstock because one of the guys who was in my class at Princeton was one of the three guys who put that show, who had organized that. I didn't know him very well, Joel Rosenman. Mm-hmm. And they were rich kids. And they said, let's do a big concert. They had no idea that ha- that 300,000 people were gonna show up. And they were ill-prepared. Yeah. And the kids needed to eat. They raised, tore apart all the farms around where the concert was. The kids were tearing corn right out of the fields to have something to eat. There was no food. And, but, and Woodstock
0: is this, always painted as peace, love, and it was just a shit. Bullshit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Bullshit. I well, mean, festival really people is. were high enough, that's what they remember, because they want to remember that, but that wasn't it. Yes. I left. I had to go back to Boston. Mm-hmm. You know, it took me a, almost a whole day to get in. There were so many cars on the road. It was an amazing event, and it was unfortunate that they had no idea to know that that many people would show up. There's a book called something Babylon that tells the true story of Woodstock. It's a big thick book If you can find it paperback, I can't remember the The word Babylon is in the title. Look it up
0: Um, I got a couple more questions, and then I just have some YouTube questions for you, which I'm sure you'll love to answer but um, We need to get Gene Simmons in here Gene if you're ready if you're ready and uh, you have the demos we want to listen to them and come on in We've reached out to Don Landy. We spoke to him. That would be great. And I think week four, he could possibly be coming in. Um, same with Ted Templeman, but we'll see. Um, when you were calling Warner Brothers so so many times, and I had heard so many other... I don't know other-
1: how many. It might have been four. It might have been 10. Yeah. I just know that from time to time, I'd say, H- has anybody noticed these guys? I didn't know that Gene Simmons had found. I heard that years. What took
0: them so long, though, to... To snatch Van Halen up because everyone we've spoke to says that
1: I think the same they haven't seen them. Okay,
0: they just hadn't.
1: And that's why I was pushed. And I do know I pushed the day that they were at the Starwood. I must have been the one to tell them because there was literally nobody there. Yeah. Just Sydney, Mike, the door guy, and How me. How
0: cool is that?
1: Sam? And I'm not making that up. <laughs> yeah. It was, they, they didn't have a fan base in Hollywood, there was nobody there. I know they did well at, at the at the whiskey later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had heard about it, but I never saw them there. I saw them once. Wasn't it they, the whiskey before Starwood though? I'm sorry. What? I
0: thought I thought they were doing two nights a week at the whiskey, and then Marshallborough. I don't know. I,
1: okay. And they, the Gazaris was in the yeah, in yeah, the yeah. Mix. Probably Gazaris was first, and uh, in the valley, I don't know what they whether they ever played there. I know they played at Pasadena because mm-hmm. that's where they lived.
0: San Bernardino a lot, yeah. and and Venice, and and those and,
1: places, but. Um, but the night, the night at the Starwood was it, because on napkins. What a setting, though. Pouring rain. And I don't think they came joint. in there because Ten of me. Ten people in attendance. I don't think they even remembered that I had called. Mm-hmm. And I just think that I was there because I knew they were going to be there. And, and I talked, talked talk to Ed. We talked once in a while back then. And I was there. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, Ted and Mo walked by me. They were almost rude to me. They hadn't even heard any, but they were drunk, so what the hell, you know. Yeah. Ted was really flying high. <laughs> and uh, and next thing I know, they're upstairs. I said, look at them. They're going, oh, they're going toward the dressing room. And they had been at a table up there. There's a little, you know, the little thing upstairs. Mm-hmm. Letter of intent. I didn't know what they had done until later. I said, I know what they were doing up there. They were writing a letter of intent. And then that's when Warner Brothers... Ted, Ted probably went back and said, "You got to see this." Yeah, yeah. It wasn't uh, Paul put on one of the videos you did with him recently that it had been uh, Lenny Wernker and Ted. It wasn't. It was Mo and Ted. Mm-hmm. But you know, Paul re- said, "I realized after I said it that I had the wrong guy in my head." It's easy to confuse the Warner Brothers guys. Well, I heard there, there was a third person with them, um,
0: and I have an email from Greg Greenoff
1: that I just got actually. That's not so. that I saw. Give me one
0: moment.
1: Russ I None of those guys were there. Russ Idleman wasn't there.
0: When you came back for the fair warning sessions in this room, yes, were you just like,
1: that's a pretty cool moment because you. Were it's there. a cool moment, but it was just ten minutes, and I had to go to my rehearsal. Mm-hmm. But Ed put his guitar on me, and I played it a little bit, and I said, this, "Oh!" And when he told me to tap, I said, "I don't tap." He says, "Do it, do it," <laughs> and I and I hit. I hit a note and that amp just came alive. Uh-huh. It was so easy to make the the, the hit notes pick up and sustain. Mm-hmm. And on my amp, it's, it was shorter. Yeah. And I, I went back and put Tried it, and, saw, and then later, I sold that amp to Ed, my amp, mm-hmm. the one that had been used on Rock Candy, because yeah. by the end of the 70s, I think it was probably 79, when I sold the amp to Ed, he came and picked it up at my apartment, the same place where he had brought the cassette for "Dance the Night Away." Uh, he came and he gave me four hundred bucks for the head. I just sold the head, not the bottom. Mm-hmm. Where is we, that now? Do we know where that is? Now? It, he might, it 30, might still 30. be part. Okay. He might yeah. be. I if you that. can find a, a Marshall Su- a Super Lead 100 mm-hmm. uh, plexi from about 67, 68. Uh, that would be the one mm-hmm. and there aren't many of those because a lot of people went on to the later Mark II mm-hmm. Marshalls and I don't think Ed liked those. I didn't like them because they had a preamp thing and preamp distortion Sounds like a weird squashy Mesa boogie-ish Such kind of thing, thing. Yeah. It's a, and that isn't where you want it You want to get it at the back end of the amp and making the speakers cry for mercy mm-hmm. and That's what Eddie did so well, but his amp wasn't as loud as as mine, mm-hmm. and I asked him about the amp at once. I remember after he bought the amp, I said, "How do you like my amp?" He said, "It's a great amp, but it's cleaner than mine. A little too clean for me." <laughs> and I said, "Well, fuck with it and get it to be like <laughs> yours." You know,
0: you take all the
1: amps. He, he was always so nice. I mean, I, I never saw him in a bad mood except that, in the battle in there mm-hmm. that day.
0: Real quick, Ted. This is from Greg Renoff, who said Ted Templeman told him that Marshall, Marshall Burl from Whiskey, set up a showcase of the Starwood for Ted. Ted showed up, and the rest is history. Oh, and the other person who was actually with Ted when Messenger ran into them on that second night at Starwood, Ted went alone on the first night, was Mo Austin and Russ Tidelman. Ted told me he didn't bother inviting Lenny W. down because he knew Lenny was into softer music and probably would be turned off by the Roth EVH thing.
1: That all makes sense. I didn't know it was two nights at the Starwood, yeah. but the night that I was there, I was just there early in their set, and there was just Mo and Ted. There so was that could have been night one
0: then. Yeah, there was yeah. no one else. There wasn't Russ there. So Well, yeah. we could
1: find out what the dates were. I'll go home and look online, because mm-hmm. there's a, a web page where you can get the temperature throughout the day of any city in New York in, uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, Of any day. Of any day. Yeah. I, I recently had... Occasion to do that because uh, I had met uh, I had met one of the, a big intellectual i don 't even have to mention who it was at Ford Hall Forum in Boston. I used to go to the lectures there, mm-hmm. you know, having been an Ivy leaguer you know i I was interested in economics and politics and stuff, and I had seen someone at the Ford Hall Forum, and I remember speaking to the speaker, who was a famous economist and uh, and I used to tell people it was so damn cold out there and and uh, I, we, I waited till I could talk to him after the lecture, yeah. and someone said, oh, it wasn't freezing, I found it. 27 <laughs> degrees at 10.30 at night in Boston on December 8, 68. I remembered the date even. That's crazy. And it's there, I have it in my computer right now. There's a, a graph of the whole day. I didn't know that that was possible. It was just a, a hunch, yeah. and I got on the line, and there it is, but
0: anyway. It's so. amazing stuff. This is so fun because we can just get all these different perspectives and put it yeah. down and finally on video. Yeah. I and think that audio may- and...
1: maybe the third guy showed up the first night after I left.
0: Oh yeah, that's true as well. That's
1: possible. And we're talking. But I'm not kidding. Forty three years ago, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I saw it, Ted, and 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 they were they weren't rude to me. Cause I didn't really know Mo then. Uh, I knew Russ, Lenny. And Ted, uh-huh. and I, I had the most connection then with, with Russ mm-hmm. Tidelman, and because uh, you know he and I loved that old stuff from New Orleans, you know Huey Smith and the Clowns and stuff. You're still producing to this day, right? If people want to get a hold of you, how? What's the
0: name of the studio? And
1: and it's uh, the studio was first called just Doug Messengers, <laughs> but everyone was bugging me. You need a better name. So I said, okay, Hard Drive Analog and Digital because I have the tape machine, too, so I put analog and digital. And recently, the young guys who come say, that sounds old, hard drive. I said, okay, now we'll be Audio Grand, analog and digital. It's all lowercase, but the G is a big G. Audio Grand. That's the name of the studio now. And if you want to contact me via email, it's the old studio name, harddrive at onebox.com. O-N-E-B-O-X, one box. Hard drive, one word with two Ds. Hard drive at onebox.com. And so that's the story. Amazing. Do
0: you have uh, time to take a couple YouTube questions and Facebook?
1: Uh, Uh, I'm here for for you. Some other (laughs) lunatic called me last night. He wants to meet me later today. He's writing a book. I don't know who he is. His name is Jay something. Hmm. A guy named Jay is writing a Van Halen book. Who isn't? (laughs) Yeah, who isn't, but how did he find me? I don't know. I heard things today that amazed me that you had heard about me from several people in the past.
0: Anytime someone talks about the infamous, well, Brian Key, who brought you up, who was such a, a I met great him in the nineties. I think. Yeah, he said he knew you well, and I think that was probably just from engineering. He's a nice
1: guy. I like him.
0: Extremely nice, and also we wanted to. People have been asking how to get a hold of him, his uh, company, because he transfers tape and yeah. can make it digital. Uh, I want to know why he his, doesn't
1: have me doing that too, because it's good money.
0: Brian, we got a partner <laughs> for you. Truly, uh,
1: I have. I can do eight track, sixteen track, twenty four track. Through a, a, a tape machine that smokes anything they got right here, yeah. and I don't brag about my gear, but that my board by Dean Jensen is like the Bushnell board that was in one, because yeah. Dean invo- was a, one of Bushnell's helpers, mm-hmm. and uh, the one that later became Demedio, you know. But that tape machine is the very machine that the wall was done on. Uh, Producers Workshop here had yeah. did 1,600 hours on the wall and it was all the way through the mixes. They had done a week in Paris, a week in New York, then they came here and that's where they stayed. And uh, they they liked Stevens' machines but they wanted two machines and this machine was bought from John Stevens and it was thrown together when they got here and what year was that, when was the wall? I don't even remember the year. And it, but later, when I wanted to, I started my studio. I had a 3M machine that I had bought from Record Plant. And uh, I, I was around Cherokee a lot because I knew Dee and I were friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tetco, the other, that their star engineer. Tutko was as good an engineer as Don Landy, he was amazing. Listen to Jack and Diane and that stuff. Yeah. I'm the sound. Those kids, actually. It's just right gorgeous. And Tutko died recently, he had uh, throat cancer. He's working in Nashville. Tutko had the broadest shoulders in the history of the world. (laughs) A guy who was wearing like 28 jeans and he needed a 44 jacket. You know, this huge shoulder. Skinny guy, you know, Tutko. Real short hair and uh, a a terrific engineer and one of the nicest guys he ever met. I remember he married the daughter of uh, Dominic Frontieri who owned the Rams the L.A. Rams, yeah. and there was that that thing where Georgia Rosenblum and her husband, Carol Rosenblum, owned the Rams, and Rosenblum died. Yep. Some people suspected it was mob, and next thing you know, a guy with an Italian name is married <laughs> to the woman, and I went to Tutko's wedding because he married her daughter, his his daughter, mm-hmm. Dominic Frontieri's daughter. That didn't last long because she was a groupie. She couldn't keep her hands off the boys, you know? Or was it the boys' hands on her? I don't know, both.
0: Have you ever thought about just writing a book for fun?
1: No, but if someone would want to help me, I would do it. Are you a writer? No. (laughs) It's not going to be you. I can produce it for you, though. We'll get the bright people together in this. People tell me, they've been telling me for years, Doug. You have such a memory, backing Etta James, backing Al Green, all the different things you did. Playing Monopoly
0: with Jimi Hendrix. Huh? Playing Monopoly with Jimi Hendrix. And here's
1: This is a a recent event. I recorded, uh, well, it was done at my studio, a guy named Nikhil Karula, who's sort of a Dave Matthews type guy. He's an Indian American, Mm -hmm. very talented, but he gets his hands in on everything and he ruins his own mixes. (laughs) He should have let the (laughs) engineer do it. And he... I had told him the story about Hendrix, and he he said, you're full of shit, messenger. There's no (laughs) way Hendrix would play Monopoly. He called me recently, this year, and he said, I'm mailing you something via, you know, to your email, and it was something from some book. I I didn't keep it, but I could get it again. Mm -hmm. It's about Hendrix's family story. And in that, whenever the Hendrix family gets together, and there were more than three or four people, they played Monopoly. So Jimmy was into Monopoly. I didn't know that. But he's the one who saw the the thing on the floor. Let's play Monopoly. He was really a nice guy, Hendrix. Very Mm soft-spoken, and never raised his voice much. I only met him twice, but both times. And the second time I met him was across from the whiskey, in, in 1970, May 70, and Danny Weiss was playing at the at the Whiskey, and one of, he had one of the good little little marshals with mm-hmm. the two 12s. he had two of them, and both of them blew up uh, at, the night before. He was playing with a group called Rhinoceros, mm-hmm. you ever hear of them? Yeah, um, we talk can about Apricot Brandy, or Apricot Brandy, it depends on where you come from, and uh, he, uh, he called me, he said, Doug, can you, I had met him in San Diego when I first moved to California. He said, can you help me get my one of my amps fixed? I need it for tonight. So I took my Gibson down there and said, here, use this at your rehearsal. It was the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. And it was the one I would played on St. Dominic's Preview, a great Gibson amp, there are very few. I made 40 of them. GA-46, a super maestro. Mm-hmm. It was for accordions. But if you put better speakers in it, it was an amazing guitar amp. Well, listen to St. Dominic's preview. It's yeah. a rich, big, clean sound that's unlike any Fender or Gibson you've heard before, just on that song. But anyway, so I went and took it down to Van, down at Modern Music, over here on Cole Street, I think it was, to get it fixed. And I came back with this amp, ran in said, hey, I've got it here. I put the amp down and Danny came out and took it. Went into the club and I looked across the street and where Oz is now, yeah. it was Music Hall, a little store that sold LPs and 45s and pictures. And who's standing in front of that? Jimi Hendrix. I did not recognize him as the guy I had played Monopoly with, but I said, "Shit, I want to meet Hendrix," as I had Axis Bold as Love, yeah. which I still hold as is one of the greatest records ever made in rock and roll. I don't like that he let Noel Redding sing that verse on one song, mm-hmm. but ha- Castles Made of Sand, Axe Bold as Love, Little Wing, oh man, Up from the Skies. That is incredibly creative. Yeah. Just yeah. amazing. His guitar style came less from blues and more from Barney Kessel and Curtis Mayfield. Because some of the stuff Barney Kessel played on Julie London's record... Crimea River, mm-hmm. and the in, in that intro to Little Wing, that's Barney Kessel, yeah, but with a Strat sound, and you know, informed by Curtis Mayfield, the little sick, the things that are fourths and the sixth, mm-hmm. the sixth note in the scale, and all that, and uh, I said, shit, I'm going to talk to Hendrix, so you know, bold, Doug. <laughs> What's well, over? And I got behind a bunch of people over there, and he's giving autographs. He looked like hell. He was greasy and dirty. His hair was a mess. He hadn't slept. You could tell. Mm. His, something had spilled on his jacket. He had a velvet jacket and satin pants, and it was colorful as hell. And he, I said, "That's Jimi Hendrix. I've seen the pictures." And all of a sudden, he looked up. He said, "Come on, guys. Uh, you know I'm I'm fucked up right now. I thank you, but uh, please, please, yeah. I want to be alone." And he looked through the crowd as they have dispersed, and he said, I know you, to me. <laughs> no, you don't. I know you. You don't know me. He says, no, I know you. I just don't know where I or you when.
0: Does so that sound like, and, I know st- you, man.
1: He stood there for a minute, and he said, where are you from? I st- a lot of places. <laughs> Mexico City, New York City, Boston, you name it. And he goes, where- you're a musician, right? I had... I had Led Zeppelin kind of Ted Nugent hair that down to here. And finally he said, Boston, Boston. He's pointing at me the whole time. Boston, I met you in Boston. I said, I played everywhere in Massachusetts, everywhere throughout from 64 till till 69 when I left Boston. He goes, Boston. And he says, Monopoly. He pulled it out of his wow. head. That's he says crazy. it was that club where I played with Joey D and the Starlighters And I said yeah, you had a strat You didn't have a strat You had a jazz master <laughs> and he says and a super reaver and we started laughing That's crazy. We're standing there Reconnecting, re- you know, and I hadn't really connected with them that much And so we walked down sunset past book soup, which used to be up there at the no, top, no, right before that. the whiskey, no, a, but on the no, other side, and we walked all the way down to where Book Soup is now, and then we walked back. And he's telling me, "I've got to stop doing drugs. I really do." He said, "I'm, I'm, I'm a mess." He said, "I, he said, I can't play as well as I want to. I made a mistake getting rid of Noel and Mitch. They really are. There's magic when the, I play with them. Mm-hmm. When I play with, with you know, with a Buddy and Miles and them, it's good." but it's not the magic. Yeah. And he said also, I went to a Gibson guitar with them and it, I'm a Strat guy and Mitch Mitchell's thinish drum sound goes with a Strat. Well, mm. he really was aware of exactly what had happened. And I said, well, let's get you back with Mitch and Noel. And he said, how do I do that? And I said, well, for one, you gotta stop using drugs. And he said, I'm fucked up right now. He was on something then. I said, it's not a good idea, Jimmy. It's not a good idea. He says, you know, he said, I can't even get it up right now. And he said, "And you know, I love girls, and I can't even get it up because of the drugs. Yeah, you and I said, ladies, well, man. we'll get you back to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get you back to that. And, course, and, course. and I said, here's my phone number, same as with Van Halen, a matchbook. You ask people for paper, and they hand you a matchbook. Mm-hmm. And I wrote my number in there and gave it to him. I said, call me. And we'll start talking about drugs. I'm not going to tell anybody I've met you. I'm not going to tell, we're not going to talk about it. You're going to do it. The way you can do it is no outside influences allowed. No one you've done drugs with before. If they talk to you, hi, I have to go, you've got to be tough. He didn't do it. He was dead four months later. Proof that if you don't do what Doug Messenger says, you die. (laughs) No, just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, let's
0: take one question from our Facebook page here, and then we'll uh, let you get going. Appreciate your time so much. Also, um, Brian Kehu, his website is round round www.roundandwound.com. Um, and maybe World you and Brian round. can, I'll give that to you later, but you guys could team up on some uh, business or something. Yeah, Both I... amazing storytellers and uh, just such history. Um, but from Nick Evans Maori here, he said, I have Bootlegs from this time period talking about Van Halen I have bootlegs from this time period and Van Halen played a lot of covers Ed often said he never tried to emulate or sound like the other artists when you Doug saw them Were you amazed at their versions of the cover songs or was it their original material that stood out?
1: Everything about the way he played stood out. I didn't put it in categories Mm -hmm. It's really hard to keep what you have when you're young and I was amazed at how Ed could go to different places and keep it good. Yeah. Like when they did Finish What You Started. Yeah. Radical for, for Van Halen. Last question, real
0: quick. Gotta, our camera's gonna shut off in oh, 90 seconds. What, um, what's your favorite Van Halen song? <sighs> I just don't want the, the cameras on a time card. Favorite here. song. No pressure, no pressure. The card fills up, we're gonna shut You gotta off. give
1: me a minute here
0: on this. Jeff Neal, what's your favorite Van Halen track?
1: <sighs> oh, In some ways, Top Jimmy. Because the chord progression is so radical. Mm -hmm. It's like some wild Thelonious Monk jazz progression and the intro is brilliant. And it's not a song that's as exciting as Running With The Devil or You're The One. Mm -hmm. That's in a way my favorite probably. But the tone, the first record, and some of the second record, and some of Fair Warning, they're my favorite tones. Mm-hmm. I like it when it's thicker, not too bright. Yeah. It was this rich, smooth, the that the the fuzz, you know, that, that's in a Marshall. Mm-hmm. It was so. It was like one thing that didn't vary. There's no spikes sticking out. It's like this incredible thing that could lift you up and carry you across the room. Mm-hmm. What a sound that amp he had, Mr. Neal. Uh, I would probably go either uh, lighting up the sky or Unchained.
0: Interesting story with Unchained too. Off the
1: cliff. I right love up. Unchained too because I got to hear it, yeah. <laughs> and I got to hear the bad stuff that he was being forced to do. Well, the guitar that day. pretty <laughs> amazing. Experience. You know, and then he, and then somehow it ended up. The right thing and I know that I don't think Ted would have put up with it putting it that way I think Landy and him might have on their own done it because I did hear a rumor recently that Landy and Eddie got together sometimes at night Mr.. Neal any other questions?
0: I think uh, it's been a pretty
1: interesting talk I, th- I you. think that I've, I've warned you, you, you guys out. I'm sorry. Oh, no. We can go oh, I'm too talkative. Hours. Have
0: you ever heard Mr. Neal, Mr. Jeff
1: Neal's engineering uh, tracks? Tell pretty? me what you've done and I'll tell you if I've heard uh, it. Just stuff. We'll talk <laughs> off camera. <around. laughs> yeah. I probably have. Mm-hmm. I just know that if he's at this place, it's going to be pretty good. He's a senior engineer. It's going to be good because this, I still hold that those old small desks are better than any of the big new desks. Yeah, They sound better. I have one of them. Mine is a weird ass British Dynamics D3000 mm-hmm. that Dean Jensen said take everything out of it. Buy this desk because it has two features that I've never seen before and I'm gonna build you a board. Yeah. And he did, it's killed me. He, char- he charged me 600 bucks to do a total design and he made- gave me a box full of parts. He says here are all the parts you'll need I've, I've done four modules here, four modules there, two modules on the stereo bus. You're gonna do the rest. I said, I don't know how to run a soldering iron. He says, there's a, there's a soldering iron in there. I still have the soldering <laughs> iron Dean gave me. And it, he said, you'll mess up for a while. I messed up four or five. And then I got better at it and it was good and I took the bad ones to him and he fixed them. You know. But I'm convinced that those smaller boards Minimal signal, Minimum yeah. signal path is why you an SSL, even an SSL 9000, which is very pure, but there's something cold and hard about that desk. Mm-hmm. Whereas these old APIs and the old Bushnells and Demetios and the old Trident A range, it's Cherokee. There was Toby Foster and them fixed the grounding mm-hmm. and fixed the summing. The summing wasn't good on the Trident, mm-hmm. but the EQ and the front end is yeah. amazing. It's a sound. And you can hear it, and uh, and so those are the boards from. They're all from the all from the seventies. All the boards that. Mm-hmm. Well, in the late sixties, there was a company called Melcor, which later became API. And if you can find Melcor EQs, buy them. They're like a two-band 550, and they're better than the 550s because they're smoother. But that's part of what people like about APIs is the little. The fizz that you a little bit of zip that you get. Mm -hmm. The Melcors are the smoothest thing. You can do 9 dB at 55 on a Melcor EQ on a kick drum, and it doesn't get boomy and crazy because the curve tightens the the more you go up. It's beautiful. Come to my studio, I've got a bunch of them.
0: Melcor EQs. The guest is Doug Messenger. Next up's Danny Carmazzi
1: from Montrose. Appreciate your time, sir. Ask him if he was on the Rick Phillips record. Uh, That he did with Fergie Fredrickson. I I don't think, I think it was Dean Casarnovo who was the guy who almost destroyed.